Currency Press is Australia's foremost publisher of the performing arts. We've been sharing Australian stories since 1971, and with those stories, we've also shared insights, ideas, and critiques. We think of them as the stories about stories, the stories behind stories, preparing us for the journey that we're about to undertake. Hello, I'm Toby Leon, and this is Not in Print. Today, Elena Valentine, one of Australia's most renowned and respected playwrights, whose work includes Parramatta Girls, Eyes to the Floor, Shafana and Dan Serena, Grounded and Cyberbile, will read the preface to the double edition of Brumby Innes and Bid Me to Love, two plays written by another of Australia's literary treasures, Catherine Susanna Pritchard. Pritchard was born in Levuka, Fiji, where her father was editor of the Fiji Times. She matriculated from South Melbourne College and worked briefly as a governess. She later taught in Melbourne, studying English literature at night. In 1908, she travelled to London, working as a freelance journalist for the Melbourne Herald, and on her return as the social editor of the Herald's women's page. In 1912, she left for England again to pursue a career as a writer and published two novels, *The Pioneers* and *Windlestraws*. She met the Australian Victoria Cross winner Captain Hugo Throssell while away, and in 1919 she married him and moved to Western Australia. In 1922, her only son Rick Throssell was born. While she was on a trip to the Soviet Union in 1933. Hugo Throssell committed suicide. From the 1920s until her death, she lived at Greenmount, Western Australia, earning her living as a writer of novels, short stories, and plays. In 1951, she was nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature. A few words about Brumby Innes and Bid Me to Love. Written in the 1920s, Brumby Innes confronts the turbulent relations between the sexes. And the races in the remote Pilbara region of Western Australia. It is published with another Pritchard play from the 1920s, *Bid Me to Love*, which, by contrast, is set among the fashionable rich in the lush hills outside Perth. Now here's Alana Valentine reading the preface to the double edition of *Brumby Innes* and *Bid Me to Love*, which was written by Pritchard's son Rick Throssell in 1973. I've just finished two plays for the Triad Affair. One a Norwester, which I suppose will be considered unproducible, but the thing wrote itself. I couldn't help it. As I saw the corroboree, it was the most thrilling and dramatic performance I've ever seen. It could be produced, but Jimmy doesn't like the play at all. It's too brutal, he thinks. But it's true in every word and detail, really. I don't in the least expect it to please anybody. And the other is an honest-to-god attempt to write comedy. Jim says it isn't. So there we are. Catherine Susanna Pritchard to Vance Palmer, twenty-third of June, nineteen twenty-seven. But Brumbyinnis won the triad competition and waited forty-five years for production. Bid me to love Catherine's honest-to-god comedy was unplaced in the competition. It remained unheard of until I found it among her papers. Recognised in her comments on marriage and sexual freedom, the light-hearted prophecy of women's liberation, and produced the play for Canberra Repertory. Catherine Susanna Pritchard did not consider herself a playwright. 
Her place in Australian literature rests upon the 24 published volumes of her work and the translation of her major novels and short stories into some 15 foreign languages. Yet she wrote 17 plays, 11 of which were produced by the Little Theatres and Amateur Companies, which were Australia's only Indigenous theatre at the time. And Bromby Innes, when in 1972 it at last reached the public in John Symes' production for the Australian Performing Group and the Nindenthana Company at the Pram Factory, Melbourne, was greeted with enthusiasm by the critics. Barry Watts wrote in The Australian, Anyone thinking of putting Australian ingredients together and writing the great Australian play can screw the cap back on his pen and take himself off quietly to the pub. It has been belatedly discovered that Catherine Susanna Pritchard wrote it in 1927. The theatre was part of her childhood. Her father, Tom Pritchard, editor of the Fiji Times, was an enthusiastic amateur actor. An imposing Jason with an incongruous walrus moustache, crimson cloak, short blue tunic and discreet white lace above the knees, he still challenges me from a dusty watercolour on the wall of my workroom. Catherine tells of her own youthful exploits in the story of her childhood, The Wild Oats of Han, how she found the plays of William Shakespeare in the forbidden sanctuary of her father's study and lay full length on the floor, gazing at the pictures, absorbed in her own story-making, content to let her parents believe that she had been reading the plays when they discovered her. I believe, dear, our harem scarin will be a credit to us after all, her father said. You will be asked for reminiscences of her childhood when she has become famous, and you will say she was intelligent always, read Shakespeare at the age of nine, although a sore trial to her parents at most times. Or how she dressed in her mother's opera cloak and corsets and a pair of lavender tights from her father's theatrical box and played Mademoiselle Delicia the circus queen, in a death-defying leap from the branches of a willow tree to fall winded into the garden, cured for the time of theatrical ambition. Her first attempt at playwriting was no more encouraging. She had dramatised the story of William Tell and determined to produce the play for her family and friends. Catherine remembered her first excursion into drama in the autobiography Child of the Hurricane, when at 80 she retraced the years. She had written out the parts for her brothers and cousins, coaxed them unwillingly to learn their lines, and carefully devised the stage effects. But before a delighted audience of relatives and neighbours, things went sadly wrong. Katie found herself not only playing the part of Tell's wife, but moving as unobtrusively as she could from character to character, whispering their lines. And when at the critical moment the bolt was fired, Young Tell forgot to pull the hidden string. The apple remained securely balanced on his head until a harassed producer raced across the stage to remind him. The apple fell in neat halves, but abandoning their parts, Tell and his son both dived for a half of the apple. The audience wept with laughter. It's not everyone who can write a play and produce it and make the costumes and play all the parts, a friend of her father's consoled her. Undeterred, Catherine decided at 15, after seeing Henry V with George Rignold in the lead, that she would become an actress, and she did at once appear with the Yarram Dramatic Society in the title role of Pinero's Sweet Lavender. 
but by that time the all-absorbing determination to become a writer had replaced her youthful ambition for the stage. Catherine told me once that her first ambition was to write for the theatre, but she was already embarked upon her career as a freelance journalist, with a handful of published short stories to her credit, when her first one-act play, The Burglar, was produced at the Australian Drama Night, arranged by William Moore and Louis Essen in Melbourne in 1909. The play, a slight comedy on a conventional theme, is significant only in that it is the first evidence of a stirring social conscience which was to be a central part of Catherine Pritchard's later writing. A young woman socialist, one of the first socialist heroines to find her way into the theatre, disturbs a burglar in her bedroom and presents him with the treasured trinkets and heirlooms given to her by her mother and father to help pay his way through university. I was in such a blasted hurry to be an ornament of respectable society, the burglar explains. The girl replies, Do you know there is nothing more unrespectable than so-called respectable society? Really, it's a caucus of people who never think and are stupid and cruel to those who do, who wear their beliefs like their skin and cannot understand that what we believed yesterday we don't today or won't tomorrow. But parting with her treasured mementos has all been pretense to conceal the diamonds left in her keeping by her fiancé. The wretched, useless things, how I hate them, she exclaims and bursts into passionate tears. Two short curtain raises written for the actress's franchise league during a six-year residence in London followed. Her place, produced in 1913, comments mildly on the class consciousness of the English, The plot uses the same symbols of wealth and privilege employed in the earlier play and later echoed in the London-based romance Windlestraws. A valuable pearl necklace has been stolen. In order to avoid incriminating a flighty young boarder, the charwoman accepts the blame herself. Exonerated, she explains, There was me an old woman, miss, with all me life behind me, and there was her, a young girl, with all hers before her. I hopes I know me place. With a somewhat delayed attack of conscience, her employer puts the moral of the piece. Do you think she knows her place, Pete? Look at her hands and her eyes. She'd have gone to jail for Rosie, who isn't even grateful. Do you know, Bunny dear, the place for selfish and idle women like her and me is at the feet of women like you, and your place is on a pedestal. No copy of the second London play survives, but it was reported in the Melbourne Herald's account of a reception to delegates to a conference on women's suffrage. Catherine Susanna, it seems, had discovered the agitprop. The piece de resistance was a stirring dramatic sketch, for instance, written especially for the occasion by Miss Kay Pritchard, Melbourne, and the scene of which was a room in a white blouse factory in Australia. In this work, the writer showed a rare skill in compacting together romance, politics and social economics, for it was designedly a play with a purpose, turning upon the very much better fortune than any she had hitherto known which comes to an English factory girl who goes to Australia, whither she has been assisted by a government lady in the Strand. So propagandist indeed is the whole thing that while listening one almost suspected that our astute immigration officials had been using Miss Pritchard's brain to improve the occasion. A third play written in London, A Miracle in the Street of Refugees, remained unproduced. 
Towards the end of her life, Catherine revised it slightly and sent it to Leslie Rees at the Australian Broadcasting Commission, hoping it might be suitable for television. Catherine Susanna Pritchard returned to Australia in 1916. The long battle to win recognition abroad was won. With the Pioneer's Prize as her trophy and the satisfaction of success in the tough field of freelance journalism, her attention turned to her goal of knowing the Australian people and interpreting them to themselves. I wanted to live and write in Australia about the country and its people. Those years in London only strengthened my desire to do so. The Pioneers was twice filmed, in 1916 by Franklin Barrett and in 1926 by Raymond Longford for Australian Films Limited. In 1923, Catherine wrote a one-act version of an incident from the novel for the first season of the Pioneer Players in Melbourne. At Louis Essen's insistence, she later rewrote it as a three-act play. It could not contain the full compass of the material, and Catherine herself was dissatisfied with the result. It remains as an affirmation of her sympathy for the underdog and faith in Australia. This country will be the redeemer, blot out all the old stains, Mary Cameron, the play's heroine, promises. There was little time for serious dramatic writing, but often Catherine explored new ideas in a play, turned to the compression of incident and character which dramatic form demanded before embarking on the fuller score of a novel. With plays, as with poetry, those inconspicuous murmurings of me to myself, she sometimes spoke more directly of personal things than she allowed herself to do in her major work. The Great Man, a comedy of the trials of parenthood, was written in 1923, shortly after my own birth in Greenmount, Western Australia, where my father and mother, Captain Hugo Jim Throssell VC, had made their home. It too was presented by the pioneer players before Louis Essen's short-lived experiment in a playwright's theatre collapsed, as so many of its successes did in later years. Revising the play in 1959 before presenting it to the Campbell Howard Collection at the University of New England, Catherine scrawled in pencil on the title page of the first version, A Poor Thing in My Opinion. But there was a certain simple charm about the original, which was lost in her attempt to give the play contemporary relevance to the post-war housing shortage, reversing the young mother's initial revolt against middle-class domesticity and the overweening amiability of relatives. It's more important to dust a book than read it. Washing on Mondays, cleaning silver on Fridays, fretting ourselves to death if the kitchen table's not white and the saucepans haven't shiny bottoms, letting the house grow like a shell on our backs. Catherine had already planned her next work, an allegorical novel of a broken-backed circus girl's courageous charade in the Circus Maximus of life when she decided to visit a cattle station in the northwest. Faye's Circus, as the book was first to be called, was intended to be her entry for the Bulletin's 1928 novel competition. There was no thought of a play in her mind, but there was a story that she had to follow. An Aboriginal woman mustering cattle had thrown her baby into a dry creek bed and left it to die. Catherine wanted to understand how a fellow human being could be brought to such terrible madness. At Turie Creek Station... 300 miles beyond the railway at Mekathara, on a tributary of the Ashburton River, the drama of a man's conflict with the harsh, sun-blasted country absorbed her. 
It's terrifically hot and the dust storms suffocating, she wrote to Vance and Nettie Palmer on 19th October 1926. But I've been riding nearly every day and I'm the colour of red mulga and hennaed with dust. Sometimes one of the gins rides with me, sometimes mine host, who is really a bit of the country, and sometimes Mick, a stockman who has lived here all his life. And in a postscript she added, I've done a play to be called The Brumby, or Brumby something or other. The real thing is here. His name is Leek. It fits so, Brumby Leek. And I've got to find one that won't run me in for libel. Catherine entered Brumby Innes for the triad competition without much hope of success. Louis Essen was the playwright, and Vance Palmer, too, had more experience in the theatre. She wrote to Vance Palmer, Strike me breath, Vance, dear. I'd give anything for your Louis to win this stunt. Not that it counts much in itself, but that it opens the door. But when the results of the competition were announced, Brumby Innes was unanimously selected by the three judges from 107 entries. Gregan McMahon submitted a special report on the winning play. I consider Brumby Innes to be in a class by itself. In originality of subject, atmosphere, characterisation, virility and technique, it is a very remarkable work, comparable to some of the best of Eugene O'Neill's, and it is, moreover, essentially Australian. It has been objected that the subject matter is sordid, and on that account the possibility of production should be discouraged. I am assuming that the subject matter of the plays presented is no concern of the judges. It matters not whether it be sordid tragedy or bedroom farce. We are looking for an Australian playwright who has the gift and technique of playmaking, who can at the same time work with facility in a purely Australian atmosphere, and from whom in the future work of a high standard may be expected. If the playwriting competitions brings to light such a one, I think he should be placed first irrespective of his medium. In my opinion, we have found him in the author of Brumby Innes. Tates were to produce the prize-winning play, but despite Gregan McMahon's intention to create a special company to present Brumby Innes, it remained unperformed until, in a more tolerant time, Australians could look with maturity and understanding at their own past. In 1927, even to Louis Essen, Brumby Innes was immoral and shocking. Apart altogether from its literary and dramatic quality, I don't think Brumby Innes has a possible chance. It is a powerful and picturesque work, beginning with a wonderful corroboree, but the episodes are startling enough to make most people shudder. A repertory or any other audience will get the shock of their lives when it is played. A few cuts can be made, of course, but nothing can prevent it being a terribly daring play. It has some splendid scenes and characters, and you are made to feel the atmosphere of a wild and lonely cattle station of the Norwest. But personally, I think the author has been too sympathetic to Brumby. Nothing can excuse his brutality, not even his virility, which is his long suit. Katie says that she has written a short last act but did not include it. It seems to me another act or scene is necessary. Another ending might give a better twist to the moral. But it is a good and hopeful thing that a real Australian play should be chosen instead of a cheap bit of bogus romance. It is the type of play the pioneers should have done. Its influence, dramatic if not moral, will be good. It is a notable contribution to a future Australian repertoire and would create a stir anywhere. 
Bromby Innes did not come to life until three years after Catherine Susanna Pritchard died, but Brumby himself was recreated in the form of Sam Geary of Coonadoo when the searing intensity of inspiration could no longer be denied and the novel streamed from her pen in a surge of creative energy to sweep up the Bulletin Novel Prize in 1928. Catherine returned to the softer setting of Greenmount in Autumn and the domestic theme in Bid Me to Love, a simple comedy of the days before farce lost its separate identity on the stage. It is a play which draws its humour from observed reality, which finds gentle amusement in the frailty of its characters and the contradictions between their romantic ideals and their very ordinary impulses and inhibitions. To me, the reality of the setting and characters of the play was transparent. The veranda of our home at Greenmount was described in the stage directions. My father spoke in Greg's every word. I saw my mother's romanticism and unconventionality in Louise, found my own childish sayings recalled. Even Phoebus Apollo, the family cat, was included in the cast. As to the plot, fact or fiction to tease her own Jim, that remains KSP's private joke. Margaret Williams wrote recently, Brumby Innes is not first and foremost about white exploitation of black, but about the nature of sexual relationships, and is really a hard-headed demolishing of the whole concept of romantic love as a basis for sexuality. In a way, Bid Me to Love turns the coin. It glances with amusement at the marriage contract and its problematic alternatives. As Brumby Innes foreshadows the fuller score of Coonadoo, Bid Me to Love anticipates in many ways the novel Intimate Strangers, which had tragic parallels in Catherine's own life. The names of the principal characters are the same. In the early notes for the novel, Elodie, too, is called Louise. The theme remains marriage, clouded in the novel with the racking reality of the Great Depression. Under the financial stress and political ferment of the 30s, Catherine saw literature as playing a more direct role in the battle for or against. Her later plays reflect this decision. An unproduced play, The Great Strike, written on internal evidence in 1931 or 1932, tells in the first act of a miners' strike at Broken Hill and in a political science fiction conclusion foresees worker control of the mines. Forward One, a one-act play written in support of striking shop assistants, was produced by the Workers' Art Guild in Perth in 1935. Women of Spain, a passionate appeal for assistance for embattled Republican Spain, followed in 1937. Penalty Clause, later retitled Solidarity, was the longest and most successful of Catherine's agitprop plays. It told of a strike of miners on the West Australian goldfields when one of their mates is killed in a fall of rock in a dangerous section of the mine, despite the loss of holiday pay under the so-called penalty clauses of the then-existing industrial legislation. The play was produced by the Workers' Art Guild for the 1940 West Australian Drama Festival. Paul Hasluck, then drama critic for the West Australian, found the play unconvincing in its industrial advocacy, but moving in its presentation of human problems. The chief reason for the human strength of the play, however, was the writer's genius and the sympathy and understanding which fed it. 
If she is content with having revealed something of the human situations which lie behind industrial relations and the ways in which negotiations proceed, her play is a signal success. It has given suffering flesh and eager blood to workers and their wives and sweethearts, and it was this human quality in the play that was most convincingly reproduced in the strikingly natural presentation by the Workers' Art Guild. In the war years, all of Catherine Susanna Pritchard's energy was directed towards the defeat of fascism. The time that was left was wholly absorbed in the immense Goldfields trilogy covering three generations of men and women, over a span of some 50 years. The final volume was published in 1950. Exhausted and disillusioned by the reactions of critics who saw the work as mere propaganda, Catherine's unresting creative impulse turned again to drama. In 1951, she completed a long biographical drama on Alfred Deakin, the founder of Australian Federation, who had once been a friend of her father's. The play was entered in the Commonwealth's Jubilee stage play competition of that year. When Catherine learnt that the competition had been won by Kylie Tennant with a play on the same subject, Tether a Dragon, she was at first suspicious of Miss Tennant's treatment of Deacon, but after reading the play, she allowed her own material to remain unproduced and unpublished. Catherine returned to comedy in her final play, Persephone's Baby, the story of the baby son of her friend, Sumner Locke, who died in childbirth in London, leaving her baby to be brought up by three sisters in the helter-skelter world of the theatre. Sumner Locke Elliot later wrote the story of his childhood in the novel Careful, He Might Hear You. Catherine had urged me to collaborate in the play, to give my own hopes as a playwright a leg up. I was unenthusiastic, and Catherine herself regarded the play as just a piece of confectionery. She wrote in February 1959, I'll never try to write another play. It's not my medium. Doesn't interest me enough. Too many inhibitions and outlines rather than filling in a character. Nuances which have to be left to actors and producers. Persephone's Baby was entered in a national play competition, nevertheless, under my name, with Kay Throssell as a collaborator. You needn't be associated if we don't get anywhere, Catherine wrote to me. I had entered a play of my own, and for once in my life, was glad when both scripts were returned without comment. In her monograph on Catherine Susanna Pritchard, Henrietta Drake Brockman quotes an article in The Realist, number 14, 1964, in which Catherine, anxious that I should succeed, unshadowed by her fame, said, I gave up writing plays when Rick began to demonstrate more dramatic talent than I had. Her own little-known contribution to Australian drama, briefly surveyed in these pages, has its place in the stream which leads to the great spring of Australian dramatic writing in the 70s. Rick Throssell, Canberra, 1973. Thanks for listening to this episode of Not In Print. I hope you enjoyed hearing more about this great Australian play. And if you did, we'd love it if you wrote a quick review of the show on iTunes. Even a short review will go a long way in helping others find out about our podcast so they can learn from the same playwrights and theatre professionals that you've enjoyed listening to. You can find out more about who we are and view our full catalogue at currencypress.com.au. This episode was produced by Currency Press with the generous assistance of the Department of Performance Studies and the School of Letters, Art and Media at the University of Sydney.